The Old Testament reading is from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 21. Then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male or female slaves, your livestock, or the alien resident that is in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When all the people witnessed the thunder and the lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, they were afraid and trembled and stood at a distance and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid for God has come only to test you and to put the fear of him upon you so that you do not sin. Then the people stood at a distance while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The gospel reading is from Matthew chapter 5. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's pray together. Gracious God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you uh, that you have given us your word. We thank you for your faithfulness toward us in Jesus uh, and that you have stepped into the story of history in such a way that you are leading this new exodus in Jesus. I pray that as we read this particular story, this episode, from the original Exodus, where you delivered your people out of enslavement in Egypt and brought them through the sea and into the wilderness and to the mountain and now give a law. 
I pray that you would help us to locate ourselves in your great story of renewing all things. And that through this text, you would speak life to us. You would speak love to us. You would speak freedom to us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been in Exodus now for most of the fall. We're continuing our way. We're halfway through the book, but we're well more than halfway through our sermon series. So we've now entered chapter 20. It's a 40-chapter book. And really, this first half of the book of Exodus, as we've already seen, is like high drama, story after story after story of God showing up and doing remarkable, redemptive event kind of things, right? He calls Moses to himself from a burning bush and he leads Moses to Pharaoh and there's this whole interchange and then there are these plagues and then deliverance and the army chases after them and they're brought through the sea and then there's miracle water and miracle food and miracle water and then there's this deliverance from another battle and all of these things are happening. It's high drama, like action movie type stuff. And then the people come to Sinai. And we arrived at Sinai last week in chapter 19, and we were reminded that the reason that the Lord has brought his people out is because he is going to involve them in his great mission. He's calling them to be this kingdom of priests for the nations. And so there's this setting apart of a people to join God for a purpose that is happening in this story. And that brings us now to this giving of the law. Now, these are, these are famous, famous verses, right? We often call them the Ten Commandments, or some might call them like the Decalogue, or uh, Ten Words. But these are, these are among the most famous verses in the Bible, and as a result, they are often among the most in need of reframing for us, because whenever you have a passage of Scripture that's abstracted from the story, it begins to take on a life of its own, and often in ways that aren't really part of what God was intending in giving it in the first place. And so what we want to do this morning is to read this part of the story as part of the story, God giving a law to his people. And as we do, I'm hoping that we'll see a few things about the law that God gives. One is that it is a gracious gift. Another is that it is covenantal in nature. And then another is that it is historical in nature, and specifically historical in a way that it's part of a history that's going somewhere. And that that history goes toward Jesus, who will fulfill and expand this law and lead us into a way of relating to it differently than maybe it was originally given to these people. But as we start, let's just look at this law and consider it as a gracious gift. Because you and I are modern, maybe postmodern people. Most of us are Westerners and individualists by wiring. And therefore, we come to rules or laws and we immediately experience them as limiting. Right? It's just like our, our default mode. You read these and you're like, you shall not. And you're like, oh, okay. Rules. And so we read the law and we immediately feel like these are sort of imposed limitations. And of course they are, but we experience them in a way that's maybe a little bit different than the way the original hearers would have experienced them. 
And we read a, we read a phrase like punishing children for the, for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation. And we're immediately like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And we stop short of reading, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me. So we're put off by the things that maybe the original readers would have heard as a generous overemphasis on the faithfulness and reward of God to those who follow. We're immediately pumping the brakes because what we hear are these things that feel like perhaps unfairly limiting or unfairly judging. But if we want to put this in context, remember, this is a people that has been delivered out of enslavement in Egypt. They're coming from a context where there were many gods. They're living now in a world surrounded by other peoples who worship many gods. And I think if we were just to drop ourselves down, go back in time and live among people in those kind of contexts, I think we would be immediately struck by the anxious dread of the gods. Because if you're living in a world an agrarian society perhaps, with these kind of this pantheon of capricious gods who have the sacrificial system or whatever, you're always wondering, have I done enough to not upset the harvest god to the point where we're going to have famine? Have I done enough to not upset like the rain god that we may not have flood or the war god that we may not be conquered? And there's this kind of anxious, escalating dread. And if you look through history of ancient peoples and how their sacrificial systems progressed over time, they went from sort of like small to medium to large to tragic, right? Because there's always this wondering, have we done enough? And you start reading the histories of the world and it goes from grain sacrifice to human sacrifice pretty quick because you never know if you've done enough to appease the gods. But then this Lord, Yahweh, enters the scene at the burning bush and calls Moses onto this mission and says, you're gonna go to Pharaoh and you're gonna deliver my people from that kind of world. And we're gonna do something new. And so this whole story happens and they're here at the mountain and the Lord begins to cast a vision for a new kind of society that he's going to build, a people ordered in such a way that will reflect his image to the world. And the first thing he does is begin to spell out for them very clearly what it looks like for them to live in relationship with him. This won't be a God who keeps his people guessing. Have you done enough? He tells them. It's actually a gracious provision. It's why you read a Psalm like Psalm 19, and it's like you delighting in the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It's actually this gracious gift. It's not meant to be a tyrant who looms over you with impossible demands, because you see the law wasn't given as a prerequisite for being right with God. The law was given to a people who had already been redeemed. It was mapping out a way for this particular people now to order their life around this faithful one who's brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, which is where this section begins. It's a gracious gift. 
because the people who live in this society are going to experience, by virtue of faithfulness to this law, they're going to experience justice in this society that is seeking to order its life around the goodness of the character of God. Because you see, the law that God gives is a window into the heart of God. It's a window into what God cares about. It's also a window into what order in the midst of chaos looks like. Because as we've already seen, this Exodus story is not just a story of rescue. It's a story of recreation. And just as God in the beginning brought order out of chaos, and established this Garden of Eden and put his image bearers in the garden. Now we're doing a new recreative act where once again, the dry land has appeared as the waters have been parted and a people have come through and the image that has been fractured and shattered and taken is going to be restored as God's people are reoriented toward God. Their life together will reflect his character and his heart and the world will see who the Lord is by the quality of life of this people living together according to the law. It's a gracious gift, but it's also this covenantal gift. And we don't always know what to do with covenant. So a covenant is a relationship between non-equals at least, well, so we have covenants, right? Like marriage is a covenant in our law. That is a covenant of equals. Biblical covenants, as we see, are reflective of other kinds of nation treaties from the ancient Near East, where a sovereign entity imposes an arrangement on another entity. We live in a country we live in a city where the country was born, for example, right? Even our basketball team is called the 76ers because we, that, that's the year we go to in Philadelphia. We remember that this is the place where our nation declared independence. And what nation is it? Just walk down the street to the museum. We're right on the side of the wall. It says, we the people. And it's all about the people granting consent to the governors to govern, right? The authority resides in the community. We, in this democratic republic, grant authority to some entity that will then exercise authority over us. But it's a social contract that starts right here among us. That's the modern democratic state. That is not biblical Israel, okay? That is not at all. This is a kingdom. This is a kingdom. And the Lord is king. And the Lord rules over the people. He doesn't invite them into a dialogue where together they put their minds together and figure out an arrangement that seems good to all of them. Rather, he, the creator of all things, who orders all of the world, who has established life to be what it is, has delivered this particular people in a way that they could have never delivered themselves from a power that enslaved them and was ruining them. Out of love, he has moved toward them, he has rescued them, and now he will recreate them according to his wisdom, his desire, his vision of a flourishing humanity and world. And he begins by rem reminding them who he is, what he's done on their behalf, and how they are there with him because he has delivered them. And then he starts to spell out for them what that life looks like. 
And we won't get into any sort of like nuts and bolts of the individual uh, commands here just because we don't have that kind of time. But he starts talking about how, you know, you'll have no other gods before me. That's a unique thing for this nation. And it will be a, a key to their being set apart to be involved with God in the great renewal of all things. They are going to be his beloved child, his chosen instrument. And he establishes this Sabbath day, that their, that their life together will be ordered in such a way to reflect the goodness of creation because the Lord made the world in six days and rested on a seventh. Their work week is to reflect that kind of rhythm and so on and so forth. Their life together is to reflect his character. But as we read this, we need to remember that these aren't just like abstract principles that are here to show us what individual obedience or goodness looks like. These aren't to be the sort of cartoonish two tablets on the wall with 10 sayings that hang in the courthouse or Sunday school room that's just sort of like, you know, guidelines for good living or something like that. This is foundational for a particular people at a particular time and place, namely the people of Israel, not the modern nation state of Israel, that's a whole different geopolitical reality from our modern times, but the people, this family of Abraham that was enslaved in Egypt that is now delivered by God, who will be the very family from whom God will bless all the families of the earth, this people is uniquely gifted with and tasked with reflecting the image of God for the benefit of all. And that is a story that is, you know, in, in its early stages here, but it's going to continue unfolding through this long narrative that we have access to in the Bible. And it's going to be this people set apart for mission with God, this priestly kingdom that will belong to the Lord to be his treasured possession, a priestly kingdom, as we saw last week. Now, there's this whole long book of the covenant that is this, you know, longer section that, that, uh, that will unfold from in, in the later chapters of Exodus. And unfortunately, just the way our sermon series works, we don't have sufficient time to, to spend like going systematically through each and every chapter of that stuff. Once again, I'll plug Cindy's class. This is a good opportunity. If you do want to take the slow deep dive journey through Exodus, we have a place for you. It's on Wednesdays at noon here or at seven o'clock in West Philly. Cindy is leading a study through Exodus that goes deeper than we can do in sermons and will take a whole lot longer than this fall. So never too late to jump in on that. Am I right? Never too late. You should go. The story unfolds from here. And it's a really fascinating ride because God's people who've been redeemed from Egypt and set apart for mission, they're gonna keep wandering through this wilderness and have kind of this bizarre 40 year experience of, of this journey before they are then about to enter a land that God is going to give them. And it's remarkable because when you get, so here at the end of this section, Moses is talking about how um, the Lord gives them an experience. If you look at these later verses in 18 to 21, you get this sort of like shock and awe discipleship 
where the Lord shows up in this like lightning and thunder and crazy way of like, let me give you a glimpse of myself, boom, so that you don't forget who you're dealing with. And then you will be reminded of like, oh yeah, this is why this kind of way of life is worth it. Because the Lord is real, boom, there he is, right? But by the time you get to 40 years later and they're looking across into the land and Moses is casting a vision for their obedience. And he's gonna say, look, when you go into the land, choose life, not death, choose life. And what, what he means by choose life is order your life around the law God has given you, choose the Lord, don't choose the other ways. And in the same breath, Moses says, but you're not gonna do it because you don't actually have what it takes. You, there's an internal reality to you that needs to happen. He uses this phrase, circumcision of heart, which sounds super weird to us, but it would have made more sense then because circumcision was a mark of faithfulness. And he's talking about a kind of interior change of reality to being marked as God's own. But even in the same breath as he's saying, look, go into the land, here's the vision, order your life this way, choose life, not death. It's, this is how it will go well, and you won't. And they don't, and that's the story. It unfolds and things begin to fall apart as the people, when they live toward God, things go well. When they live away from God, things go poorly. And it's just this story that kind of gets out of hand, right? And by the end, you get these prophetic visions of a day that will come. Jeremiah talks about there will be this day of, of a new covenant where God will circumcise the hearts of his people and they will actually have what it takes to live a life of faithfulness and to join God in this mission in a way that will bring life to the world. Or Ezekiel will talk about this heart of stone being renewed and being remade as a heart of flesh. And the other prophets will talk about this day of the Lord when the spirit will come and make the people renewed with the very life of God that will enable them to do the thing that they were unable to do at these earlier stages of the story. And then Jesus steps on the scene as the fulfillment of the whole thing. When we meet Jesus, especially as we meet Jesus in the gospel of Matthew and he starts to talk about the law, you know, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And he gives this sermon, it's the most famous sermon, right? The Sermon on the Mount. And he starts to unpack even portions of this section. And he doesn't say like, because of my grace and mercy, we now no longer need to pay attention to this stuff. He then takes, he's like, all right, you've heard do not murder, but I tell you that even those of you who are angry with another in your heart are committing murder in your heart. He expands it, he even shows that our clean hands will conceal a murderous heart. That every one of us will need an inner renewing by God simply to live well, to live in a way that is consistent with God's vision for a flourishing world. And as Jesus is preaching and teaching and modeling, what he reveals is that just as those generations past didn't have what it took, we also don't have what it takes. But Jesus does. He has the anointing of the spirit to live the life of faithfulness toward God as a human being, to actually fulfill this vision of restoration in his own life, to live it in the earth. And yet, even as he lived the life of humanity, 
perfectly and beautifully. The other humans around him rejected that vision of life and put him to death. He died at the hands of lawless people. Yet, he even died in a way that was outside of the law, for that matter. He died cursed and hanging on a tree, which puts him outside of even the law's purview. Yet the vindication of, of the Lord was for Jesus nonetheless. And God overrides this whole system, raises Jesus from the dead, appoints him as king of heaven and earth as he ascends and takes his throne. He gives him the gift of the spirit. And then Jesus gives us the gift that the people were waiting for all along. The spirit of the living God who renews us from the inside, who renews our hearts, who makes us alive, who gives us actually what it takes to begin to walk in the ways of the Lord as those made alive together with Jesus. And just as for those, orig those original Israelites who are redeemed from Egypt and brought to the mountain and given this law as the beginning of their life with God, we, as we are made alive together with Jesus and, and get his spirit and are drawn into this new way, that is the beginning of our embarking on an Exodus journey where we begin to participate with him in the renewal of all things, where our life together begins to be ordered around the life and love of Jesus and obedience to him to reflect his image to the world so that we aren't primarily shaped by our worldly habits and ideas and political platforms or life philosophies, but we're most fundamentally shaped by what God reveals to us in Jesus about who he is and what he desires for the world and for each and every one of us. And so as we begin to pull this text toward our own lives and begin to say like, well, how do we live into this now? we begin to see that the law remains a window into this same heart of God who's been active this whole time. Now, Jesus gives us a new lens through which we look at this, a new lens through which we even relate to it, right? Jesus leads us in the way of love, but not in a way where love departs from this vision of order in the midst of chaos. I'll tell you a story that has helped me understand how this is freedom. I went canoeing once upon a time. Some of you have heard this story, um, but I went canoeing on a college spring break trip one time with my buddy Brian. And we had this whole plan. It was a week long canoe trip and we were gonna canoe the Ogeechee River in Georgia, which goes from sort of central East Georgia to the intercoastal waterway at Savannah, basically canoeing to the Atlantic Ocean. It was gonna be a great plan. We had everything all set up, our tents and whatnot. We were gonna canoe with alligators and all the stuff. We get like half a day into this canoe trip and the skies open up and it just starts pouring down rain. I mean like real rain, right? And the river that we're canoeing starts to rise and it starts to rise more. And then it rises to the point where it has now spilled out of the banks and is now like this whole big marsh. And there we are in our canoe. And all of a sudden we have every option we could possibly want. We could canoe in 360 degrees because there were no more limits. There was no more riverbed. We were utterly free of all of the limits. 
but we realized there was one thing we were no longer free to do. Canoe the river. We couldn't find it. We were lost. <laughs> the water spilled out in such a way that we could no longer navigate the actual river that we had set out to navigate. And amid all of the endless, infinite options, we actually lost the freedom to do the one thing we set out to do. The law functions for us like the riverbed that charts our course. It's not meant to be a confining thing that actually makes us unfree, which to embrace that we have to take a different notion of freedom. If we take a, a libertarian notion of freedom where freedom is the freedom to choose A versus not A, then yes, this law takes away that notion of freedom. But if we go back to maybe an, a more like Augustinian, if you will, notion of freedom, where true freedom is the freedom to be able to choose what is good, the law of God, especially as it is fulfilled and expanded and displayed in the life of Jesus, it actually is liberating for us because it removes the options that lead to death and it charts the riverbed that we can then navigate toward life with God in communion with God. And so the law is something that we do delight in as a gift because it helps us discern the way of life. It helps us order our life together in a way that is good, where we're not just adrift in the world to navigate every decision simply by what feels good in our guts, according to the zeitgeist of our day or the sensibilities of our feelings, but we're able to navigate in conversation with the creator of the world who makes life what it is to begin with and leads us in a way of love for the good of our own life, for the good of our neighbors, and for the good of the world. And so we can say with full hearts, thanks be to God who gives us his law as a window into his wisdom and who leads us by the example of Jesus and the accomplishment of Jesus who has created a new world in which we live where we no longer are under any tyranny of any moral obligation that we are unable to fulfill because Jesus has fulfilled it all. And he has led us into a world where we are now free and empowered in his spirit to do what is good. And so we say, thanks be to God. May God give us grace to rejoice in it, to live into it, and to encourage one another in the next steps of our Exodus journey. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God, we love you and we thank you for your love toward us in Jesus. Would you help us to fix our eyes upon Jesus and to delight in the gift of your word and spirit? Help us to love what you love Help us to walk in your ways. Help us to open ourselves fully and truly and to surrender to your liberating love that we might be rescued, that we might be recreated, and that we might join you in your good work of making all things new. We need you for all of that, and we pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen.